Thanks, Amanda. Good morning, everybody. Wasn't Easter fun? Can we thank the teams for putting that together? I mean, there's so many people who brought extra hands. The logistics team, I remember, were running around putting extra chairs out that we didn't have. Uh, I know that was largely due because we had the, the tables back there. Um, but my favorite was we were setting up the baptismal right here, this portable baptismal uh, pool, jacuzzi, whatever you want to call it. And uh, 30 minutes beforehand, people were still br- lugging out from the kitchen hot water to make sure it fit. Uh, and it's just a reminder of how much uh, you all put into making this happen. So we're so thankful. The kids team, I heard there was 50 kids back there, which the first thought that went through my head was, is our team still breathing? Because uh, that's intense. I have two. 50, okay. Uh, so the kids team, thank you guys for what you did. The hospitality team, you guys were on point. Decorations, the food, it was so good. Band, of course, uh, you guys were, were great sound. Uh, AV. Uh, the photo booth was wonderful. The, we, had, uh, we had an Easter bunny and Pikachu here taking pictures, which was really funny. It was like equal parts. Hey, I want my, my kid to go get go to you. And no, I don't want my kid to go to you. Uh, creepy. Uh, no, it was super fun. Those guys were awesome. And the balloons, uh, we still have some that are still floating around our place. Um, thank you guys for all you did. Wasn't it fun to welcome so many of our friends and neighbors from the community uh, who Church isn't their normal thing. And may, maybe you're here today and this is your second time checking out or church isn't normally your thing. Welcome. As Amanda said earlier, uh, we are a community following Jesus and you're welcome wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Um, today, I'm excited. We're starting a new series and we're going to be looking at the Old Testament. For those of you who know your Bible, you understand that the New Testament was just read. Uh, that's to set up the series. But we're going to be, for the next few months, getting into the Old Testament, just kind of a survey, working through uh, some of the big stories there and characters and some of the ones that aren't as familiar. Um, because uh, we've been spending, uh, in the time of the New Testament, which is, covers the life of Jesus, since we started this church back in September. And so we thought it would be a fun opportunity to go through the Old Testament, see what it, it has to say. Um, now, when you think about the Old Testament, uh, what comes to your mind? This is, the, this is the part of the Bible that was written before Jesus' life. What comes to your mind? What, co- what would come to your mi- the, the mind of somebody you're around in the workplace or out in the community, uh, if you're just to talk about the Old Testament? Uh, for some, and I've, I've had some of these conversations, the Old Testament is the place of moral contradictions. What's up with all the murder and polygamy? I mean, it's like, how's that in the Bible? Is that, I mean, what, what's the deal there? Um, what's interesting, though, is we think that the Bible's condoning it, which it, it isn't. Um, uh, even long before uh, uh, it says, thou shall not murder, there's all this murder happening, but the, the narrative really undermines all of that. And even the characters who are doing that, it's the, the Bible is more just saying, this is what happened. I'm not saying this is what you should go out and do, obviously. And then the deal with the polygamy, I mean, even the first few words of the Bible is, I, I created them in my image, male and female, not male, female, and female, and, fe- and so forth. I mean, it's setting up the case of just saying, hey, this is not good. But even long before it was saying one, you know, one in your, in your marriage, one other, um, the, the, the narrative undermines it there. And you, you notice when you look at the, the, the characters in the Bible who are, uh, doing polygamy, it wasn't going so well for them. They had a number of issues. Uh, reminds me of that song, uh, I Got 99 Problems in My... No, they had a lot of, lot of problems. Um, or maybe this is you, and this is probably, this is probably the, the, the more reality for a lot of us. When we think of the Old Testament, we think, oh my goodness, that was written so long ago. What does that have to do with today? I mean, because the New Testament itself, over the life of Jesus, goes back 2,000 years, let alone centuries before that. How can that be helpful? Oh my goodness, that's why I'm so excited about getting into the series. 
the, Old, the Old Testament, the, the Bible, spanning back to the very beginning, uh, transcends time. It, it, it's, it's timeless truth is so helpful uh, for us today. It's as current as ever, as we, as we like to say. Um, and so what we're doing today to set up that series is we're going to be looking at Luke 24, which kind of carries along with the Easter celebration. I mean, it's right after Jesus rose from the dead, so that fits. But the reason why we're looking at this text, in light of getting ready to look at the Old Testament, is it is especially helpful in understanding how to read the Scriptures. Because it's Jesus' take on how to read the Scriptures. Uh, Jesus has been described as the Word of the Lord. Here's the Word of the Lord telling us how to read the word of the Lord. Did I say that right? The Lord of the Word telling us how to read the word of the Lord. So it's incredibly valuable. Have you ever wanted to understand the Bible and how to read it? This is the passage. Have you wanted to understand how to learn from it and grow spiritually? This passage is incredibly helpful. One little extra uh, thought um, in case you care. If you've been coming to uh, Current for a while or you're just curious, this is probably within the this is probably the most influential text of any other in the Bible, at least in recent years, that influences how I study the Bible and how I try to preach. Um, so this is a very helpful text. Um, and so we're going to look at that and, and, and understand how Jesus shows us to read the Bible. So we're going to be looking at three thoughts, and these are just kind of hang our, hang our uh, thoughts on as we go forward. We're going to see here the priority of the Scriptures, the purpose of the Scriptures, and the beauty of the Scriptures. So the priority, the purpose, and the beauty of the Scriptures. So first, the priority of the Scriptures. So to set the scene, again, this is three days after Jesus rose from the dead. And uh, for their part, all of his followers are gloomy. They're all, they're all depressed. They're all sad. The women have been saying, hey, guys, we've been seeing some signs. We've been seeing some visions. There's something happening. But classic, the guys are all uh, women. And, which is so like, oh my goodness, the women have such the last laugh here because he actually did rise from the dead, which is them saying, oh, men, which is, I mean, that's a whole ser sermon in itself. Actually, it's a whole series in itself. But be that as it may, there's all these things happening, but they're, they're depressed. They're like, oh my goodness, nothing's happening. And we see that in the disciples who are walking along the road to Emmaus on this day, their, ho their home village, the show's over in Jerusalem, they're having, heading back seven miles to this, their, their hometown, Emmaus, and as they're walking, up comes alongside them a stranger, and it says, actually in verse 15, he came up and walked along them, that's how it, how it puts it, and uh, what follows is probably some of the most comedic things, uh, of things in the Bible, I mean, here's Jesus keeping them from recognizing him, they just didn't understand who he was, and they're talking about him. Uh, what do they tell him? Basically, he comes up and he says, What's, why, why are you guys so downcast? And, uh, you know, so for a verse, um, the end of verse 17, they stood still, their faces downcast. In other words, they're walking along, Jesus comes up alongside them, and Jesus starts asking, ask them, what's going on? And they stop. They're like, seriously? How do you not know what's going on? And they begin to tell him, well, there's this guy, he was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. Uh, you know, he had been saying that three days later something would happen, but we don't know. The women are saying stuff, but we're not really into that. Um, and so this whole thing is getting set up. And Jesus uh, here, what is he, how does he respond to them in this, in this moment? He says, how foolish you are. And notice, he's been keeping them from recognizing him, but he doesn't say, hey, how foolish you are. Shouldn't you have been paying attention to what that man had told you about? He had been predicting his resurrection. Wouldn't, wouldn't you believe that? Or shouldn't you believe what the women are telling you? You really should. 
Or probably most uh, thing I would think of in this moment, how foolish you are. Surprise! It's me. He doesn't do any of that. Why does he not do any of that? Because he wants to impress something on them. He wants to impress something on us. Why is this account here in the New Testament? Luke wrote, uh, he, Luke, the, the writer of this gospel account, also wrote the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, he kind of looks back on the resurrection account. He says, there are so many appearances of Jesus, so many sightings on Easter and around that, day, that, around that time, but he only records about three of them. And of all of them, this is the longest by far, and it doesn't really push forward the narrative, and he's risen. It does, but that's not the main thrust of what's going on here. What does Jesus want to impress upon them? What does he want to impress upon us? He says it here. He says, how foolish you are to be downcast right now. How slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. That's what he really wants to impress upon us. Uh, what he gets ready to say a couple verses later, he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he's saying, Moses wrote, the, he, he's credited with writing uh, you know, the first five books of the Bible, the prophets basically wrote the rest of Jesus, saying in all the scriptures, how slow you are to believe the scriptures. Uh, what he is saying is, you got to see the scriptures as reliable, trustworthy, and authoritative. That's what he really wants to impress upon them. That's what he wants to impress upon us. You can take them as authoritative. Um, did you know that Jesus referenced the Old Testament a ton of times when he walked this earth? I mean, we have recorded him referencing the Old Testament 24, uh, 24 different books of the 36 books recorded. So this guy, first of all, he really knew his Bible. But number two, more importantly, any time he referenced it or quoted or taught from it, he always looked at the old scriptures with the greatest level of respect. At one point he said, the law, and the, prophet, the law and the prophets have been proclaimed. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Look, do you want to know why this matters? Do you want to know why uh, we take the Bible as authoritative, why we take it as God's word, it's not because it's been passed down to us. It's not because of tradition. We take the Bible as authoritative because Jesus took it as authoritative. If Jesus is Lord, if he, as this, this text is telling us, actually physically rose from the dead, then it kind of matters what he thinks about the Bible. If he didn't, why does it matter at all? Why does any of this matter? It doesn't. But if he did, we need, if he's Lord, then we need to take it seriously. Now, to, to, you know, to, to talk about this for a little bit, this could be its own sermon of itself, but I think it, it, it's worth spending some time on this. How can we take Jesus as reliable? Right? I mean, he's in the Scriptures. Isn't that a little circular reasoning? Dave, you can't say we take someone in the Bible seriously about what he says about the Bible. Well, actually, we can. We have a lot of... A, a lot of people out there, the big argument out there is this. The Bible, the New Testament, the stories of Jesus were all constructed for, by the early church leaders in order to grab power and to maintain it. But there are so many problems with that. First and perhaps foremost is there is no solid evidence for it. Actually, we have all this evidence pointing to the gospel writers being the ones who actually wrote it. For instance, we just studied the book of Mark. Uh, Mark, we, I mentioned this very, very early on. Uh, we have early church leaders going back to the early part of the second century saying, Mark is the one who wrote that. And furthermore, he got his material from the apostle Peter. Mark is the one who wrote it. And so it's like, okay, there's that evidence. But even within the scriptures, there's some really helpful things here. For instance, uh, there's this guy named, uh, uh, what, what's his name? Uh, 
uh, Richard Bauckham, he's a world historian and scholar, a professor in Scotland. He wrote this book called Jesus and the Eyewitness Accounts. Um, and he, he, he looked at the Gospels, the, that is the stories of, the, of written about Jesus, and he compared them to myths and legends. And what you see is when you look at legends and myths back in that time, and actually spanning a little bit before and obviously spanning a lot backwards, is whenever those writers wrote about a myth or a legend and there was a character or a few characters in there, they always either labeled or said who all of them were or didn't say who any of them were. Does that make sense? So if there's two characters in a myth or a legend, they would say the, who those two people were. If, there weren't, if those two people were there and they mentioned one, they were going to mention the other. Uh, that just kind of spans along uh, like all this mythology. But here we see that he mentions uh, Cleopas, but there's this other unnamed disciple. And Richard Bauckham pointing that out, he says, why does that matter? He said, that was Luke's way, that is Mark's way, that is all these gospel writers of saying, look, they are footnotes. If you want to check out, if you want to look into these things and understand that what I'm saying is for real, go talk to Cleopas. I mean, at one point, Mark's talking about this guy, uh, uh, Simon of Cyrene, who helps carry the cross of Jesus. Simon of Cyrene, father of Alexander, of Rufus. It's like, that has nothing to push forward the narrative other than that Mark's saying, go talk to Simon. Go find him. Or find his, his dad, Alexander. Um, you know, with the idea of the resurrection, I mean, again, this, could, this is his own topic. I mean, one of the things that just, I, I can't get my mind around is how, if this was just a construction of the early church at some point, how is it that the church exploded onto the scene at the exact time of the resurrection from a people group that would have been the last on this planet to worship a person is God. I mean, the Jews had it drummed into their heads from very early age, God is God, not man. In fact, you see Jesus very much as we work through the book of uh, Mark dealing with this idea of blasphemy and all that sort of thing. And yet, the church was birthed out. It was exploded out of Jerusalem, of all places. Um, of course, uh, I talked about this a little bit last week. Uh, I love how uh, the first witnesses of the resurrection, God's plan to have the first witness be women. You know, Cleopas here, he's talking to Jesus like, oh, women are saying. I mean, he's, he's a part of his own culture. They didn't, women, their testimony was not valid in their court system. And so if Luke, or early church leader, was writing to bolster his case for, hey, this actually happened, you wouldn't say the women were the ones saying it was all about it. If anything, that would, in that culture, lead to less credibility. Uh, so many things. Uh, Alvin Plantango, okay, sorry, this, this sermon's a little more uh, in this, in this uh, regard. Uh, Alvin Plantango um, wrote a book called Warranted Christian Belief. Um, and he's, he's an American philosopher. I think he's an emeritus professor at Notre Dame. Um, but he wrote this, uh, Warranted Christian Belief. It's not poolside reading, let me just say that. But it's, it's, if, you, if you suffer from insomnia, pick it up. Um, but it, he, he compares Christianity uh, to all of the other Western philosophies. So he looks at, he looks at Kant, he looks at uh, Freud, he looks at Marx, he looks at a few others. And he's comparing them, and his conclusion is this. He said, it is easier to believe in Jesus of the Scriptures. There's more evidence that points, that makes it easier to believe for Jesus in the Scriptures than all the other philosophies if you allow for one thing. And that is the supernatural if you allow for a God outside of nature speaking into or working, you know, miracles. Of course, the greatest miracle of the Bible is Jesus rose from the dead. If you allow for that, creation. Um, if you allow for that, it's actually his, as looking at all these, it's easier to believe in Jesus. And that's actually part of my story. 
know, for instance, with creation, it's easier for me to believe that we are something, we came from a, from a, a God who created us versus an explosion out of nothing. Um, that's easy for me, easier for me cognitively to grasp onto. Um, all that aside, if Jesus rose from the dead, then we have to take what he sees as, see, we have to take seriously what he sees as, as, as he, it pertains to the scriptures. And what he says is it's authoritative. Now, what's the point there? Notice Jesus says in verse 20, 25, he says, all of the prophets, all of the scriptures, how slow you were to believe all of them. In other words, we can't pick and choose. If the scriptures are authoritative, we can't pick and choose what we like, what we don't like. I have a, a buddy who I haven't seen in many years, um, Middle Eastern. Uh, his name is Daoud, which I love. That's my name in Arabic, uh, Daoud. Uh, great guy. We got into a lot of really fun uh, spiritual conversations. He really knew his Bible well. Um, you know what's interesting about Daoud? He would tell me that he, he had no problem with the concept of hell. He had no problem with the concept of hell. It's like, that makes sense. A righteous God bringing righteous judgment. Like, that makes sense. That may, makes sense to Daoud. Um, what he does have problem with, and a lot of cultures like his have problem with, is the idea of forgiveness. You know, it's like, that, man, that's demeaning. Why would you forgive? That's dishonorable. Who would? That's weakness. Why would you forgive? But think about that for a second. The average Silicon Valley person would approach both of these flip-flop, don't you think? And wouldn't the average person in Silicon Valley, our issue is, man, the idea of hell, that's offensive. That's irritating. Forgiveness? Yes, please. Let's have more forgiveness. Don't you think that a God who exists outside of all cultures all generations, speaking into that, all cultures, all generations, there's some things he would commend and there's some things that that culture would have to struggle through, wrestle through. Wouldn't that make sense? Um, I, I've, I've heard it said this way. It's, if, if, we, if we just eliminate the things that we just don't care, that we, just, we just filter out the things that we don't like or the things that like, kind of cross our will. Um, if we pick and choose, you know what we have at the end of the day? We have a robot God. We have a God essentially of our own making. Um, but as we also know, the best of relationships, the true and purest of relationships, either a good friendship or marriage itself, are precisely good and powerful because they can say, wait a minute, why do you? Or push us over here and you should. Uh, we know that we have, uh, I, I, this is what I've heard it said, an authoritative Bible is not the enemy of a personal relationship of, with God. It's actually the precondition for it. Um, we know we have a God when we take his word. He has a word for us, and we take it authoritatively. Um, that's the first thought. And if that, if that uh, leads you to have one to have more conversations, again, this is all just super compact. I'd love to have more conversation with you later. That's the priority of the scriptures. Number two, the purpose of the scriptures. And we see this, and we're going to move a little bit more quickly now. Verses 25. He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Oh, man, if I could have listened. If I could listen to any conversation in the history of mankind, that's the conversation I would have loved to hear. Jesus giving a Bible study lesson. Uh, That would have been pretty cool. But this is so beautiful what he's saying. Um, This is absolutely game-changing. He is saying the entire Bible, all the stories, all the poetry, the law, the events, everything in the Bible ultimately points to himself. Uh, Think about what that means. 
um, we're going to be going through uh, some of these, these books. And, uh, you know, the very first book is one of my favorite characters in the Bible, uh, the char- uh, this guy named uh, Joseph. And Joseph, uh, he had a pretty crummy life. He had a pretty crummy life. He's an awesome guy. Oh, my goodness. But he had a crummy life. I mean, his brothers uh, were jealous of, his, uh, jealous of him, s- betrayed him, sold him into slavery. I mean, that's just not fun. And then in slavery, he started to, you know, he just was doing his best, just, you know, I'm going to make the best out of this. He gained feather, favor with his, his slave master, but he was still a slave. Um, his slave master's wife decided he, he, she really wanted Joseph to sleep with him. And so she tried to get that to work out. And he said, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I, I care too much about God. I care too much about my slave master. So he didn't do it. Well, she framed him, and he got thrown into jail, not for a short amount of time, for years. He was thrown into jail. And by the way, in jail, he got jacked a couple of times. Even though he's just being super faithful, trusting God the whole time, and just loving on others, never resentful, never bitter. And at the very end of the story, all of these uh, circumstances happen. He has the opportunity at the very end to really do in his brothers. But you know what he does? He forgives. That is an awesome story. That is an awesome story in the sense of, wow, that's inspiring. That is a terrible story, though, because that is absolutely crushing. Try to be Joseph for a week, let alone years, let alone a lifetime. And even if you're able to do Joseph, the few of us who can pretend to say, yeah, I could do that, it'll make you smug. It'll make you, oh, yeah, self-righteous. For the vast majority, rest of us, it's like, you try to do that, it'll crush you. There's no way. Jesus is saying here, as he's saying this, don't you dare read the Bible as if it's about Joseph. Read the Bible as if it's about me. And what he's saying is, is Joseph is the true and greater, excuse me, Jesus is the true and greater Joseph. Jesus was not just betrayed by just some brothers. He was betrayed by all mankind. And he didn't just trust God in prison, as bad as that is. He trusts God unto death, even death on the cross. And he didn't just forgive the one slight that had horrible consequences. The, cross, the, the gospel is Jesus forgave all sins of all men, all slights ever made. And Jesus is saying, you need to ultimately see that Joseph is a, is a, is a, is a foretaste, he's a dim shadow of who I am. He's saying, don't you dare read Joseph. Don't you dare read about David and Goliath. Don't you dare read about Ruth, Esther, all these wonderful stories and see them as, don't you read it about them, but also don't you read those stories about you. Here's how this has been hitting me this week. There's all these places in the Bible where it says, be patient. Probably the best is, the most beautiful is love is patient. If you've been to a wedding, you've probably heard that verse. Love is patient. Um, I'm not very good with patience. I'm not very good with patience. Um, I got married and I found out I'm really not good with patience. Not because of Cindy, because of me. I had one kid. I had two kids. Okay, I'm not, I'm not very patient. I read these, these passages, though, and you know what I've done for years and years and years? Okay, I just need to get better at being patient. I need, to be, I need to inform myself. I start reading all these books about being patient. I need to get better practices, more disciplined about being patient. Hey, these are all good things. But you know what finally began to work in my heart and actually start to see life change? I, there was a moment when it clicked for me. I realized, oh my goodness, love is patient. That's not about Paul writing to that early Corinthian church. That's not even about Paul writing to me. It is. I mean, you, you get that. But it's ultimately about Jesus. Jesus' love is patient. The gospel is he's patient.
patient with me even when I'm impatient. And that hit me. I had a moment where I was like, oh my goodness. He has every right to be impatient with me. Every right. And yet, he is patient with me being impatient. And you know what that does to my heart? Like, oh my goodness. Oh, it frees me up to start wanting to be patient. And if Cindy ever is impatient, she's not. I mean, I'm just using this as an example. And I would say, you need to be patient, Cindy. If you are married, you know that that just doesn't work. <laughs> that's like two steps in the wrong, that's backwards. But that's the point. And yet, if I can say in my heart, Jesus is patient with me. How much more can I be patient with Cindy in that moment? I don't, I, I don't need to be patient with you. Yeah, you get that. You see, Jesus is saying, the Bible is not about you. It's about me. It's not about you. It's about me. Um, the last thought here is we get to uh, the beauty of the Scriptures. The beauty of the Scriptures. All the Bible, which, by the way, extends also to the New Testament, the parts about Jesus and after him in the early church. All the Bible is about him, and it's all pointing us to him. And so I'm sitting here like, okay, how's this passage point to Jesus and the cross? Um, that's what I do every sermon. I'm trying to figure out how does this point us to Jesus? And you know what? And there's any number of ways probably this passage could do that. But it hit me. I was studying this week, and I kept thinking over and over again. I couldn't put my finger on why. But I kept thinking as I was reading about the story of the road to, Arama uh, to Emmaus, Jesus walking alongside these guys and all, you know, this conversation, all this. It hit me. Like, it kept pinging me. Like, this reminds me of the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden. Some of you are like, oh, what are we, where's the connection? And I didn't know the connection, but I just kept thinking about it. The Garden of Eden, uh, before, you know, we chose our own way and every chaos ensued, was the beautiful picture of life with God. Adam and Eve, they go out and they'd work, and it was, you know, the work wasn't frustrating. Everything was, you know, they actually were, they were efficient. Everything was good. They, they loved work. But the best part of all is at the end of the day, they would come back, and in the garden, they would walk with God. They would walk with the Lord. And, and I realized that's the connection. Jesus came to allow us to walk again with him. It's, and it's here, verse 15. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. Walking alongside is a very powerful uh, theme in the Bible. It's not just a description of what they were doing. It's a powerful theme of, uh, of, of beauty here. You know, Adam and Eve, of course, got to walk with God. Noah and this guy named Enoch, uh, every, the Bible kind of looks at their lives. Wow, they got to walk with God. The best promise probably in the Bible, in my, in my humble opinion, is actually repeated three times in the Old Testament. God talking about his people, saying, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. The gospel is Jesus came to make this possible. Jesus came to walk with us. Um, you know what's been so fun about looking at the book of Mark? And we've been talking about this as we've been going through it. All along the, the way, it says Jesus is doing all this walking. He's walking, 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 walking. And all of a sudden, there's a little shift halfway through the book of Mark that he's on his way. He's walking on his way. Again, on his way, on his way. That repeat phrase, and we talked about the importance of that, is I was pointing forward to where Jesus was ultimately going. He was walking to the cross. Uh, the cool thing about walking is it's the one mode of transportation, surefire, you could span just about any distance you want to span, provided there's no barrier in your way. The gospel is, on the cross, Jesus spanned the only distance we couldn't span. 
the distance between heaven and earth, between God and himself, by, by removing any bar the, the great barrier that was standing in our way. That is our sin and our rebellion. So that we can walk with him. What is walking alongside mean? It's such a beautiful, it's a picture, this beautiful thing on the road to Emmaus. Jesus walking along with them. You know, walking alongside, you get to share your hopes, your dreams, your passions, or in the case of the, you know, Cleopas and this other uh, unnamed disciple, uh, you know, your despair. How's this going to work out? What's this going to mean? Walking alongside exposes us and keeps us accountable how foolish you are, but it also beckons us into his love and his grace. Listen to this, verse 32. They asked each other, we're, were not our hearts burning within us while, we talked, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? That's the invitation. Jesus invites us to walk with him, and how we get to do that is with the scriptures. We get to understand who the living God is and grow in our relationship with him. And you know what the best part about walking is, in my humble opinion? It's walking. It's not running. I mean, even in my athletic days, running was just like, dude, that's what you do for punishment. I mean, it's like, mess up, David, go run. It's like, dang it. Um, it's not running, and it's not doing acrobatics. God doesn't call you to do acrobatics for him. He calls us to walk with him. Walking is slow, steady, sure, and true. Are you going through something that's been challenging or a struggle that you're trying to figure out? God calls you to walk with him. And, he, and as you can, look to him in the scriptures, learn, follow him. Have you been picking and choosing which scriptures to say yes or no to? Let me ask you a question. If you have been, how can he bring healing into brokenness when he gives his way of saying, here's how you can do that if we pick and choose, if we filter? Or if, like me, have you been reading the Bible often, maybe even without even realizing it, that it's about you? And that's not ulti it's, it's ultimately actually about him. Uh, this is an invitation to walk with our Heavenly Father and as a community do that together. Um, that to me is, is so beautiful. As Jesus, Jesus is risen, it's true. He came to walk among us. And the beautiful thing is, not only did he walk among us, he continues to walk with us now if we will just accept his invitation. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot here uh, in this, this message, uh, excuse me, this, this text and what we're thinking about. Um, but really, I'm excited because, of course, this is uh, our launch pad to look at uh, your, your text in light of this, how it all points to you, how all the stories, how all the flawed characters whisper your name, um, which we're so thankful for because the reality is, and we know this, we can't do the things we know we ought to do. Um, being patient, loving and forgiving, um, all these sorts of things, we just desperately need help, your help, and that, that's what we rejoice in. Uh, you came to be with us, not to just smite us, but to, to join us on the journey. Uh, so we love you, Father, and would you help us do that as a church? Uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, at this time, we're going to continue uh, worshiping the Lord, um, and we're going to be doing that also, uh, not only by song, but, but um, in giving back a portion of what the Lord's given.